Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On September 7, 1996, the streets of Las Vegas were overrun by people. Among them were Grammy-nominated rapper Tupac Shakur and Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight. Most had come to the Strip to witness Mike Tyson's championship fight against Bruce Sheldon. But it was over almost as soon as it began. Less than two minutes into the match, Tyson knocked out his opponent. It wasn't the show that anyone expected, but Tupac, a personal friend of Tyson's, found it worthy of celebration. Later that evening, around 10.30 p.m., Tupac and Knight left an after-party to head towards Club 662. Tupac was set to perform there later that night. Suge and Tupac rode in their own vehicle, while other members of Death Row Records piled into cars behind theirs. At a red light near East Flamingo Road in Koval Lane, a few blocks from the venue, Tupac rolled down the window to greet some fans. He even flirted casually with one of the women, which may have been why Tupac didn't notice the white Cadillac sedan pulling up next to their BMW, or the semi-automatic pistol that emerged from behind its tinted windows pointed right at him. In a matter of seconds, around 14 shots were fired. Four bullets hit Tupac in his right hand, thigh, pelvis, and chest. Officially, Tupac died six days later at the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada, leaving behind a grieving fiance and millions of devastated fans. But according to skeptics, Tupac is still alive. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on Tupac Shakur. In 1996, the rap superstar was murdered outside the MGM Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Because of his later association with Death Row Records, known for its connection to LA's mob Pyru Bloods, many believe he ultimately was shot by a member of the Southside Crips. But to this day, Tupac's murder remains unsolved. This week, we'll examine the rise and fall of Tupac Shakur, paying special attention to the events leading up to his untimely death. Next week, we'll discuss three popular conspiracy theories suggesting Tupac may still be alive. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. To say Tupac Shakur is one of the most iconic and influential rappers of all time is an understatement. Perhaps one of the most multidimensional and progressive pioneers of hip-hop, Tupac was a master storyteller, a rebel with a cause, a poet, and a voice for the voiceless. But Tupac also struggled every day to earn his reputation. He constantly had to fight to defy history, break the mold society had created for him, prevail as the underdog, and carve out his place in pop culture. And he succeeded. Tupac didn't have opportunities handed to him. In 1988, Tupac's mother, Afini Shakur, moved the family from Baltimore, Maryland to Marin City, California, just over the bay from Oakland. She hoped that this would be a safer community for 17-year-old Tupac to thrive. But according to Robert Sam Anison's posthumous expose on the rapper, the neighborhood turned out to be more dangerous than Afini anticipated. Despite his environment, Tupac had already taken a profound interest in writing poetry and rapping. It gave him hope, inspiration, a place to vent about some of the issues he was facing, like his mother's drug addiction, violence he witnessed in his neighborhood, and selling drugs to help make ends meet. In 1989, while attending her poetry workshop in Oakland, Tupac's work made an impression on Layla Steinberg, a young local poet and hip-hop concert promoter. 
17-year-old Tupac stood out as a one-of-a-kind lyricist who managed to express outrage, compassion, and insecurity simultaneously throughout his work. Tupac knew Steinberg was well-connected and asked if she would consider managing him. Steinberg agreed and soon introduced Tupac to rap groups like Digital Underground. Not long after, Tupac landed some of his first gigs in the entertainment industry as a roadie and then a backup dancer. Digital Underground liked Tupac. They brought him on his first tour, gave him his first verse on an album, even landed him a role in the 1991 film Nothing But Trouble. And that same year, Tupac signed a record deal with Interscope Records. His first album, Tupacalypse Now, wasn't a financial success, but that didn't deter him from working on a second album. That one went platinum. By 1993, Tupac had fans, and one of those fans was a man named Christopher Wallace. Christopher Wallace is better known as Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls or Biggie. Living in Brooklyn, Biggie had been rapping as a hobby with no intention of making it a career. But when his demo made it into the hands of producer and rapper Sean Puffy Combs, that all changed. Combs saw Biggie's star potential and quickly signed him to Bad Boy Records. When 21-year-old Biggie came to Los Angeles, he asked a mutual contact to introduce him to Tupac at a party. Tupac was more than welcoming. He'd made a full dinner and invited Biggie to sit down for steaks and french fries. Before long, the pair were laughing and cracking jokes. It was clear to everyone at the table this was the beginning of a true friendship. Tupac decided to take Biggie under his wing. The two became close companions, despite living across the country from each other. Whenever Biggie came to Los Angeles, he would stay with Tupac on his couch. Whenever Tupac went to New York, he would take Biggie out on the town in white limousines, where they'd get bottle service at the hottest clubs. Tupac even helped Biggie land his first stadium performance. Biggie, who still hadn't quite made it in the rap scene outside of Brooklyn, was invited to perform with Tupac at the 1993 Budweiser Superfest at Madison Square Garden in New York. In front of 20,000 people, Tupac and Biggie cemented their iconic friendship with a freestyle rap. Seeing Biggie's success, other young rappers started to look to Tupac as a mentor. Unseasoned rappers would pack into studios to listen to Tupac's lectures about how to succeed in the music industry. Edie I mean, a hip-hop artist and close friend of Tupac's, remembers, everyone was transfixed on this dynamic individual and soaking up all the information we could soak up. But Tupac always made Biggie a priority. Tupac would later say that he even groomed him and directly influenced Biggie's music. Tupac even claimed, he used to be under me like my lieutenant. Tupac also advised Biggie to start writing his lyrics for women. He told him if women bought the records, then men would buy them too. This led to the transition from some of Biggie's more misogynistic lyrics to songs celebrating women like Big Papa. But as Biggie's 1994 album, Ready to Die, was about to be released, he worried that the record wouldn't take off. 
Combs' Bad Boy Records wasn't yet successful, and Biggie worried they wouldn't do the album justice. Biggie turned to Tupac, asking if he would consider managing him instead of Combs. While Tupac loved to mentor young rappers, he'd never managed an artist before. Not to mention, his friendship with Biggie was too important to mix with money and business. Ultimately, Tupac advised Biggie to stay with Combs, promising one day Combs would make him a star. But in 1993, Tupac and Biggie's friendship changed. Tupac went to New York to shoot a role in the film, Above the Rim. To research the part, Tupac spent time in Queens. While partying at a Manhattan nightclub, Tupac was introduced to Haitian-born music executive and promoter Jacques Agnon, also known as Haitian Jack. Tupac knew that this was the guy he wanted to model his character after. Haitian Jack and Tupac quickly bonded. They spent evenings going to clubs or hanging at a Queens bar, where Jack introduced Tupac to celebrities like Madonna and Jamaican musician Buju Banton. Jack got recognition and respect from high-profile celebrities and street gangs alike, and he was wealthy. Jack introduced Tupac to the world of high-end jewelry and fashion. There was just one problem. Biggie wasn't keen on the new friendship. Biggie had run in many of the same circles as Haitian Jack while living in New York. He knew Jack actually had a bad reputation. So he warned Tupac to keep his distance. But Tupac didn't heed his friend's advice. This caused irreparable damage to his relationship with Biggie Smalls and had an even more dangerous effect on Tupac's entire life. Coming up... Tupac faces jail time. Now, back to the story. After a rapid rise to fame, Tupac Shakur befriended New York gangster and music producer Haitian Jack. His friend Biggie warned Tupac that Haitian Jack was not to be trusted, but Tupac was too distracted by Haitian Jack's luxury lifestyle to heed him. In November of 1993, 22-year-old Tupac was partying in a Manhattan club called Nell's when Haitian Jack introduced him to 19-year-old Ayana Jackson. Ayana and Tupac quickly connected and spent the night together back at his suite in La Parker Meridian Hotel. Four days later, Ayana was invited back to Tupac's suite. But when she arrived, she found that Tupac was not alone. Haitian Jack, Tupac's road manager... Charles Man Man Fuller and an unidentified third man were there as well. According to Ayana, Tupac invited her into the bedroom and the three men followed shortly after. Then, she reported that everyone except for Charles Fuller sexually assaulted her. After leaving the suite, Ayana called the police. Tupac, Fuller, and Haitian Jack were all arrested. During the arrest, police also discovered a set of guns, which Tupac reportedly later claimed were Biggie's. Biggie was never charged for this, but he did get wind of Tupac's accusation. In addition to denying that he owned the guns, Tupac vehemently denied his involvement in Ayana's claims. Tupac said he had left the room to take a nap and was not present during the sexual assault. 
But Ayana stated that Tupac was the one to encourage the act, and she wanted to see justice. Soon, the men faced jail time for first-degree sexual abuse, sodomy, and illegal possession of firearms. Haitian Jack had his attorney sever his case from Tupac's so Jack could be defended separately. Haitian Jack pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors, which allowed him to avoid jail time. Tupac seemingly maintained his innocence, and now he began to believe that Haitian Jack had set him up to take the fall. With Jack's testimony in place, Tupac was more likely to be found guilty. And as Tupac faced conviction, he started to share his suspicions about Haitian Jack with the press. Tupac was bold in his accusations, believing that his celebrity status would protect him from any backlash. As the legal battle drew out, Tupac's attorney fees and extravagant lifestyle caused him to spiral into debt. Desperate for money, Tupac traveled between recording studios, taking any opportunity he could to stay afloat. He eventually accepted an offer to record a guest verse for rapper Little Sean. Tupac was to be paid $7,000 for appearing on the track. Tupac arrived to record his verse at Quad Recording Studios in New York on November 30th, 1994. It was just after midnight. Tupac was with his manager, Fred Moore, and his friend, Stretch Walker. Meanwhile, Sean Puffy Combs, Biggie, Haitian Jack, and a few others packed into a studio which was on the 10th floor. Tupac was to meet little Sean in the studio right next to theirs. As Tupac waited for the elevator, three men in army fatigues appeared. They approached Tupac and his friends, demanding that they hand over their jewelry and money. While Walker and Moore cooperated, Tupac retaliated by drawing his own weapon. Gunfire erupted and Shakur was shot four times, though some sources claim that he accidentally fired his own gun into his groin. While Tupac was down, the army-clad assailants kicked and beat him, then stole his $40,000 gold medallion and chain. Moore chased the men into the street, but he too had been shot. He ended up collapsing in the street. Tupac managed to limp his way into the elevator and descend to the 10th floor. When the doors opened, the bad boy crew was startled to see Tupac still standing. Tupac looked to little Sean's manager and asked, Why did you let them know I was coming here? You were the only one who knew, man. Why? According to Tupac, the men all looked guilty. But Biggie later claimed that they showed nothing but love and concern. Regardless, Tupac sat down on the couch and reportedly asked someone to roll him a joint. The paramedics arrived a few minutes later. The NYPD officers who investigated the case suspected the shooting may have been orchestrated by Haitian Jack. Even an FBI informant claimed that Haitian Jack seemed mad that Shakur was still alive and kept calling the hospital to check on Shakur's status. While this assault wasn't solved, the end result was the same. On December 1st, 1994, Tupac arrived at his sexual assault trial, heavily bandaged and in a wheelchair. It gained him no sympathy. Tupac was convicted of sexually assaulting Ayanna Jackson and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. 
Bail was set at $3 million, which Tupac could not afford. It's not clear what his net worth was at the time, but Tupac certainly had less than he owed. So Tupac served his time at Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in upstate New York. Tupac's third album, Me Against the World, released while he was in prison in 1995. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 charts and held the top spot for four weeks in a row. But Tupac couldn't be happy for his success from inside his prison cell. He wasn't thinking much about the crime he was convicted of either. Instead, he obsessed over one ugly rumor. Biggie might have known the Quad Studio shooting was going to happen. There was never any official evidence that Biggie was involved with the shooting, but Tupac knew Biggie was connected to Quad Studios and also had many connections in New York. But mostly, Tupac was upset that his friend, whom he'd mentored, had betrayed him. Maybe it was revenge. After all, Tupac did blame the illegal firearms found in his hotel suite on Biggie. But now, Tupac desperately wanted to get out of prison. So he reached out to Death Row Records CEO, Suge Knight. It's not clear if Knight and Tupac had ever met before this interaction, but Knight was feared by many in the music industry for his dangerous connections to the Bloods, one of Los Angeles' most notorious gangs. Many wondered why Tupac turned to Suge Knight, but he was the only influential and wealthy person willing to help Tupac get out of jail. And as Tupac hoped, Knight sent him $15,000 and flew out to New York to work on securing his release. Knight's lawyer, David Kenner, even helped Tupac with his case. He secured a $1.4 million appeal bond that Death Row Records agreed to pay for. The bond would delay Tupac's sentence for the duration of the appeal giving him temporary freedom until a new verdict was issued. Yet Knight was not granting Tupac's freedom for free. He wanted him to sign a recording deal with Death Row Records. Knight and Tupac drew up a three-page handwritten contract in 1995. It's unclear what the agreed-upon terms were, but Richard Fishbein, the co-executor of Tupac's estate, later described it as nothing but toilet paper meaning Tupac was desperate to escape prison and was willing to sign an unprofessional agreement to do so. Even after the favor, Tupac still wasn't entirely sold on Knight's loyalty as a producer. Tupac still believed that Puffy and Biggie had a hand in the Quad Studios shooting, and he told Knight, I need you to ride with me because I'm going to destroy Bad Boy Records. Getting him out of jail wasn't enough. Tupac was waiting for Knight to officially prove his loyalty. On August 3, 1995, Knight attended the Source Awards at Madison Square Garden. On stage, he verbally attacked his former friend, Sean Puffy Combs, on stage saying, any artist out there that wants to be an artist and stay a star and don't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be in all the videos, all on the records, dancing, come to death row. The only explanation for Knight's new attitude was that he'd just visited Tupac in prison. With the help of Knight, Tupac was released after eight months at Clinton Correctional. He immediately did two things. One, 
They began wearing a bulletproof vest almost any time he went out, and two, he exchanged verbal fire with Biggie. Just months after Tupac's Quad Studio shooting, Biggie released a song titled Who Shot Ya? Tupac believed the lyrics, which included references to bickering beef, were about their feud. Biggie's producer, Nashim Myrick, denied those were Biggie's intentions, but that didn't stop Tupac from speaking his truth. On June 4th, 1996, Tupac openly retaliated with his track, Hit Em Up. The explicit lyrics lashed insults at East Coast rappers. Tupac even suggested explicit violence against Biggie, Combs, and a few other Bad Boy Records artists. The track also declares that Tupac slept with Biggie's wife, Faith Evans, an accusation she denies. The more likely, Tupac simply alleged the affair as a way to insult Biggie. Insults and veracity aside, both tracks were a massive success. The feud was suddenly making both men a lot of money. And with the help of Death Row Records, Tupac was now rapidly producing music again. Within months of his prison release, his album, All Eyes on Me, hit the market and did $60 million in sales. Unfortunately, Tupac's shady contract meant most of his money went to Suge Knight and the other Death Row record producers. But Tupac believed the money would come eventually, so he racked up debt on luxury cars, clothes, jewelry, and drugs. But even though the records kept selling, the money didn't come. Eventually, Tupac was forced to take loans from Death Row Records to stay afloat. At the same time, he began questioning Knight about why he wasn't seeing any of the royalties he was owed. But this didn't stop Tupac from producing music with Death Row. In August of 1996, Tupac began production on his final album, Dawn Killuminati, The Seven Day Theory. This album was recorded and mixed in seven days under his new alter ego, Machiavelli. The name was taken from a Renaissance philosopher and politician, Niccolo Machiavelli, a man who is rumored to have faked his own death to gain power over his enemies. Coming up, the final moments before Tupac's death. Now back to the story. In 1995, Tupac Shakur signed with Death Row Records and teamed up with CEO Suge Knight. The record company bailed Tupac out of jail on the promise that he would produce music for them. But after Tupac's immensely successful record, All Eyes on Me, Tupac started to question the ethics of his contract. He'd produced a hit album, but he wasn't getting paid. Meanwhile, the rivalry between Tupac and his old friend Biggie raged on, made more public when each seemingly referenced it in their hit songs. On September 7, 1996, Las Vegas was packed with fans filing into the MGM Grand Hotel. They were there to witness the championship fight between Mike Tyson and Bruce Sheldon. Alongside Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight, Tupac arrived around 8.30 p.m. and took a seat in the front row. They were accompanied by armed bodyguards, but these weren't run-of-the-mill hired strongmen. All the bodyguards were members of a Compton gang called the Mob Piru Bloods. They were one of the rival gangs to the Southside Crips, 
a group Tupac believed had tried to assassinate him in 1994, perhaps on the orders of Biggie Smalls. As they waited for the fight to begin, Tupac and Knight smoked cigars and signed autographs for adoring fans. Mike Tyson entered the ring to one of Tupac's songs. In under two minutes, Mike Tyson had successfully knocked out his opponent. The fight was over before many fans made it to their seats. At 9.30 p.m., the crowds returned to the lobby of the MGM Grand. Tupac was walking with Knight and his bodyguards when they noticed 21-year-old Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, a member of Compton's Southside Crips, lingering by the elevators. While Tupac wasn't officially part of any gang, he did have clear loyalties. That evening, Tupac walked up to Anderson and asked, You from the South? Referencing his affiliation with the South Los Angeles gang. Before Anderson could answer, Tupac threw a punch. Knight and Tupac's bodyguard joined in on the fight, beating up Anderson for another 30 seconds before hotel security broke things up. The hotel security camera caught everything. Yet Anderson refused to file a complaint against Tupac. Instead, Anderson took matters into his own hands. There's some controversy over what happened as that night went on, but what follows is what's most commonly accepted as the truth. Anderson set up a meeting with other Crips at the Treasure Island Hotel. There, they plotted their revenge and decided to shoot Tupac after his performance that evening at Club 662. And Anderson would be the one to pull the trigger. But if the Crips were going to take out one of the most influential rappers in the world, they figured they might as well make a little money for it. LA Times reporter Chuck Phillips claims the Crips arranged a meetup with Biggie, who was staying at the MGM Grand under a fake name. According to Phillips, Biggie agreed to pay the Crips $1 million to kill Tupac after he left the club on the condition that they use his 40 caliber Glock pistol to do it. If Tupac was going to die, Biggie wanted it to be done with his gun. Just like Anderson, his motives were personal, and he wanted the murder to be personal too. Meanwhile, half a block down the strip, Tupac Shakur and Suge Knight exited the Luxor and filed into their black BMW 720 sedan. It was around 10.45 p.m., and Tupac was scheduled for a late-night performance at Club 662. For reasons unknown, Tupac instructed his bodyguards and his fiancée, Kadata Jones, to stay behind. He also left behind his bulletproof vest. Knight led a procession of at least five death row record vehicles, all bound for Club 662. Around 11 p.m., Knight and Tupac were stopped by a police officer who accused them of playing music too loud. The men negotiated their way out of a ticket and continued down Flamingo Road toward the club. On the opposite end of the strip, five members of the Southside Crips filed into Cadillacs leaving the Treasure Island Hotel. Four members boarded a white Cadillac with Orlando Anderson in the back seat wielding a semi-automatic pistol. A fifth member of the gang met them at Treasure Island's front curb in a yellow Cadillac carrying an AK-47. 
15 minutes later, Knight's BMW hit a red light outside the Maxim Hotel, only a couple blocks away from the venue. The streets were packed with tourists, and Tupac poked his head out the window to greet his fans. The Crips' white Cadillac turned down Flamingo Road and rounded the corner. The BMW sat in front of them, bathed in neon light, and there was Tupac. The opportunity couldn't have been more clear. The white Cadillac pulled up beside Knight's BMW, and a gun emerged from the back window. The assailant fired 14 shots into the BMW. Four bullets hit Tupac, while one grazed Knight's head. The Cadillac peeled away as the death row vehicles behind Tupac and Knight, those full of mob Pyru bloods, fired shots at the fleeing Southside Crips. It was over in a matter of seconds. Bleeding, Knight made a U-turn and tried to escape the scene, but in the chaos of the moment, he crashed into a curb. Naturally, the police were called. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Officer Chris Carroll was the first to arrive on the scene. He drew his pistol and aimed it at the car, ordering Suge Knight to exit the vehicle. Once Knight was out of the vehicle, Carroll opened the passenger door. A wounded Tupac slumped out of the car and into the officer's arms. Tupac's gold jewelry was covered in blood. The officer repeatedly asked, who did this? Who shot you? But Tupac's right lung was damaged by a bullet. He was struggling for breath. In one last act of defiance, Tupac hurled obscenities at the officer before losing consciousness. According to Chris Carroll, those were Tupac's final words. Minutes later, an ambulance arrived on the scene. Carroll rode with the rapper to the hospital and said he remained unconscious for the entire ride. At the hospital, surgeons removed Tupac's right lung to stop the internal bleeding, but his condition only got worse. Tupac was placed on a ventilator and spent the next six days in the hospital. Some sources claim Tupac remained unconscious the entire time, but this is disputed by Knight and Tupac's fiance, Kadada Jones. Kadada remained by Tupac's side the entire time. She said he woke up briefly when she played Don McLean's Vincent, Tupac's favorite song. And Knight insists that Tupac was feeling fine when he came to visit. According to him, they were laughing and joking. And yet, Tupac died of respiratory failure, which led to cardiac arrest on September 13, 1996. He was only 25 years old. Suge Knight had Tupac cremated the following day. When the police tried to investigate Tupac's murder, his entourage refused to cooperate. They also questioned Orlando Anderson about his involvement in Tupac's shooting, but Anderson was never charged. And as for Biggie, the police never found enough evidence to suggest the rapper paid the Crips for Tupac's assassination. But LA Times investigator Chuck Phillips says differently. Phillips claims to have received an anonymous tip from a Crip informant. The informant told Phillips that Biggie made good on his promise to the Crips. Allegedly, Biggie paid the gang $50,000 of the alleged $1 million he promised 
just a week after Tupac's death. Around the same time, Biggie opened up publicly about his feud with the deceased rapper. Biggie made some cryptic remarks, saying he wasn't powerful enough to orchestrate Tupac's shooting. Suspiciously, in March of that year, Biggie was also shot and killed while stopped at a traffic light in Los Angeles. And like Tupac, Biggie's death was shrouded in mystery. No one was ever convicted for Biggie or Tupac's murder. But many suspect they were both victims of the violent war between the Crips and the Bloods. After the shooting, Death Row Records claimed Tupac still owed the record company $4.9 million. That included the $1.4 million appeal bond that Knight used to get Tupac out of prison. The problem was, Tupac's net worth at the time of his death was only $200,000. Tupac's mother, Afini Shakur, and New York attorney Robert Fishbein fought the allegations. They claimed Death Row Records withheld royalty payments from Tupac and sold unauthorized merchandise. Fishbein even stated, Tupac was one of the most successful artists in the music business, and yet somehow, on the day he died, he had nothing to show for it. Death Row fought the allegations by claiming Tupac had used company money to buy cars, a home for his mother, and a multitude of other luxury goods. Death Row's attorneys said Tupac cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. They claimed he also spent $2 million of the company's money on recording and music video fees, which traditionally needs to be recouped by the recording company before the artist can see the profit. Through some posthumous investigations, Fishbein uncovered the handwritten three-page contract Shakur signed with Death Row Records to get out of jail. Not only was the contract unprofessional, it also revealed that Tupac was represented by David Kenner when the contract was signed, the same attorney who represented Suge Knight. Fishbein claimed that this was a conflict of interest and Tupac was not fairly counseled on his decision to sign the agreement. Tupac was clearly unhappy with Kenner because he fired him only three weeks before his death. And right before the shooting, there was talk of Tupac trying to leave Death Row Records. But everyone in the industry knew Knight was dangerous. Breaking their contract was easier said than done. Afini's battle for her son's work seemed endless, but eventually, Afini inherited the rights to Tupac's music. And then, she threatened to bar the release of Tupac's final album, Machiavelli, The Dawn Caluminati, if she did not see royalty returns. The record company worked out a deal and paid a $3 million non-refundable advance to Tupac's estate. While his legal case was closed, there were still many other loose threads following the rapper's death. Like the contradicting stories about Tupac's final days in the hospital. Those who believed Kadada and Knight's statements suggest that Tupac could still be alive. Which leads us to the conspiracy theories that surfaced in the wake of Tupac Shakur's death. Conspiracy theory number one. Suge Knight was involved in plotting Tupac's assassination, Suge managed to escape the shooting with only a minor head wound, and after Tupac was gone, he used it to death row records advantage. Conspiracy theory number two. 
Tupac faked his own death to escape his celebrity status and his Death Row Records contract. Now, Tupac performs as his alter ego, Casanova the Don. Conspiracy theory number three, Tupac escaped the shooting and ran away to Cuba where he lives with his aunt, Asada Shakur, a former member of the Black Panthers. Many fans hope that one day the pieces will come together, finally shedding light on the complex puzzle that was Tupac Shakur's untimely demise. But for now, the question remains, did Tupac's story end in murder or did it end in deception? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Tupac is Alive. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then... Remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Taylor Bright, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 